Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. I learned that very early on as a Christian. Prior to God saving me uh, in my workplace, I was uh, what you would call a complaining employee. I was a computer programmer, and uh, there were... I kind of thought a lot of myself, and I thought there were some tasks that were below me and different things, and I I caused a lot of difficulty. I I wasn't a horrible employee, but I wasn't the greatest employee in the world. And then God saved me, and I began to read His Word, and I began to see how we were to submit to the authorities in our lives, and we were to be servants, and uh, we were not to be complainers and such like that. And, uh, man, I just stopped all that, and I began to be a very good employee. And uh, when my review came up, we had about six months where we had old Dave, and then we had about six months with new Dave. And I said, boy, I don't know what to expect out of this review. You know, I don't know if they're going to get the older than new, right? And so I went into that review and uh, it was terrible. It was all the old Dave, right? And I took it, and I didn't complain about it. And I didn't complain to my coworker who I'd went to college with. We we would always we had a good we were very close, had a good relationship, talked all the time, and uh, so I didn't say anything about it. And I remember one day as I was heading uh, back to the house, I was getting ready to leave work, and he stopped me and he said, "Hey, man." Uh, how did your review go? Did you have it? Because you, you haven't said anything about it. I said, I, I had it. I said, it was terrible. Uh, I said, but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to keep doing my job, and, and uh, I appreciate my job in the workplace. And he was stunned, okay, uh, because he was used to hearing me complain a lot about my work. And so I was being transformed. And I'm still being transformed by the Lord. And I want you to see today that a transformed life is not optional, but it is characteristic of someone who has been saved. You need to live a transformed life because it is characteristic of salvation. Titus chapter 3. As we come to Titus chapter 3, Paul is going to turn. He's giving instructions to Titus, who is uh, one of the pastors uh, at the church there in Crete. And uh, he wants them to uh, he's giving instruction. Now, there's going to be this interaction with the world that comes. Okay, so with people who are unsaved, there's going to be an interaction previously. In chapter 2, we finished up with how we are to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, as Christians. But now it's going to turn, and he's going to to begin with the words, remind them. Remind them. So this is not something new that the Christians have never heard in Crete. It is something that they have heard. They just need to be reminded of it. Now, I don't know about you. But sometimes my wife has to remind me of things. And uh, sometimes you have to remind your children of things. Well, this is the same way for Christians. We have to be reminded about these things, about the changed, transformed life. And so in Titus chapter 3, Paul begins. He says, remind them 
to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Christians are to be good citizens of their country. Verse 1 tells us to be submissive to authorities, obedient to all laws that do not contradict God's commands, and ready to do good works that benefit our community. Submissive to rulers and authorities. And so we are not just to be submissive to our governmental authorities, but authorities that are in our lives. And so if I could, I'll start young and work my way up. For children, they're in the home. You're to be submissive to your parents. You're to be obedient to your parents. And you're to be ready to do every good work that they give you to do, even if it's not something that you want to do. And then we step on up for the children that are in school. If you're here this morning and you're attending school and you think they have dumb rules and that your teachers give you dumb things to obey, God desires that you as a Christian are to submit to your authorities and to obey them, even the dumb rules. Because God gives authority, and, he, and authority is a good thing that God gives in our life. Now, authorities can, can be, uh, authority can be abused, and some authorities are abusive. But God wants us to be submissive to our authorities where they are good in our lives. And so even when there are dumb rules in the school, you obey, you submit. Be submissive to your authorities and obedient and be ready to do every good work. So even in the school, when the coach or the teacher asks you to do something and you don't necessarily want to do it, be obedient. Help out. Do every good work. Then we move to the workplace. For those of you in your workplace, be submissive to those who are above you in your company. To those authorities, be obedient to them when they ask you to do something and be ready to do every good work. If they're not asking you to do something that goes against your Christian conscience, then do it. Even if you think it's the wrong thing as far as what's good for the company, you're not the boss in that situation. Be good. Be a good worker. Then to our church, we have pastors who are who have authority over you. When we ask you to do things or warn you about things, be obedient, be helpful. We try to be gentle and kind and lead you in Christ's likeness to have your good in mind. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is, though, mostly uh, aiming towards outside the church. So we are to be good citizens within our country. But then verse 2 goes on to talk about our communities. It says in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christians are to be high-character members of their community. We are not to speak evil of anyone. Now, let me start with the top and we'll work our way down. Okay. So like is the president, is he, is he included in speaking of evil of no one? What about the vice president, senators, house representatives, governors? 
work our way down. President of your company, managers, co-workers, the guy in your community who you disagree with about politics, the person in your family that you disagree with about different things. Speak evil of no one. We are to avoid quarreling. We are to avoid quarreling. As a Christian, you are to be gentle and courteous to all people, even the ones you disagree with. Even the ones who are not and gent- not gentle and courteous themselves to you. You ever have somebody be rude to you? We're not to respond in kind. We want, we want to skip to that step that says uh, heap burning coals on their head. We want to leave out the first part of that verse, which says do good to them and pray for them. Right. That's what's going to burn them up, not not literal coals of fire on their head. We are to be gentle and courteous. But why? Why are Christians to be kind and loving to everyone? Well, because we were a lot like them until God showed us. Gentleness and kindness and love and transformed us. Look at verses three through seven. Just a wonderful passage that we find in the scriptures. I I love it. Uh, And and we're going to park here for just a little while. But he says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what we were as unsaved people. We were not wise. We were living the lives of fools. We were disobedient to God and disobedient to authorities. We were led astray by whatever opinions and and thoughts and other religions And then we were slaves, totally captivated by various passions and pleasures. We were living our days in malice and envy instead of living our lives in this present age, as he previously talked about, living our lives for the Lord. But, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What mercy and grace God showed to us. I want you to note several things here about our salvation. Number one, our salvation was initiated by God. It is he who showed kindness. It is he who saved us. It was he who showed mercy. It was he who poured out the Holy Spirit on us. It was he who justified us by his grace. Unmerited favor. Our salvation was initiated By God. And then next, I want you to see that our salvation includes four aspects. We talk about three of them regularly here at Faith Baptist Church, but there's a fourth one. There's four aspects. There's regeneration, justification, 
sanctification and glorification. In your handouts that I gave you, there's a, a passage from the uh, Southern Baptist Faith and Message uh, 2000 on salvation that lays out those four areas and gives you definitions. Now, I tell you that they're there so that you can read them later, not now. Okay, but they're there for your reference. There are these four aspects and we see all four aspects of this in our passage today. First, we see regeneration in verse five. It says he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to park here because we spend a lot of time talking about justification, sanctification and glorification. And it's in many passages, but there's not too awful many passages that talk about regeneration. So I want us to to talk a little bit more, focus more heavily on regeneration this morning. The Spirit's work in salvation under the New Covenant was predicted in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, and I've given you these verses on the back of your handout. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, it says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. God promises in the Old Testament that he's going to send his spirit and that spirit is going to do a regenerative work. It's going to replace hearts of stone that are unable to have affections toward God. And he's going to replace those stony hearts with hearts that beat after his will and empower believers to follow him. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. John the Baptist described Jesus as one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter one, verse eight, John John the Baptist says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet Glorified. You see, Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for our sins, ascend to heaven and ask the Father to send the Spirit in a special way to New Testament believers. We see that further told to us or explained to us by uh, Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this sending of the spirit was accomplished by Jesus after his resurrection on the day of Pentecost. And we see that in Acts chapter two, verses one through four. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in Acts 2, verse 33, they, when the Spirit came upon them, Peter and the disciples go out and they preach and they preach to people. I think it's 16 different nations are represented as far as languages go. And they preach to them and they believe and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so what we have here is a reversal of Babel. When languages begin to mark the nation, God, God says my nation is going to be marked off by my spirit, not by languages. And so when this is all happening... The people around, the Jews around were like, what's going on? You guys must be drunk. And then Peter explains, we won't go through his whole explanation, but in Acts 2.33 it says, he is speaking of Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We often refer to regeneration as being born again. We are recreated by the Spirit into a new creation, into a new person. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and regenerates us. He recreates us. Just as the Spirit of God hovered upon over the waters of the earth and and did a creation work in Genesis, His Spirit does a recreative work in the life of the believer. In Galatians 6.15 says this, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we could say even more about regeneration, but what we have here is God regenerating believers. The next step that we talk about, our aspect of our salvation is justification. And we see justification, uh, which means to be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. We see that in Titus 3.7, when it says, being justified by His grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So then we have justification, then the next part of our salvation is sanctification, where God has done this recreative work in us, and then He's going to form us into the image of His Son. That's our growth in Christ's likeness. Sanctification is the theme of our passage today. And we will see in chapter 3, verse 8, it says, So those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We are no longer to live like we once were, but we are to live transformed lives. 
Glorification is the culmination of our salvation as we will be resurrected to life eternal. Glorification is seen in our passages. We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a salvation God worked in us. When His benevolence and loving kindness appeared to us, He saved us not because of works, because Titus, as I've in 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 the handout there, you can look through that later and see I've double underlined all the times good works is mentioned. God transforms us to do good works, but He doesn't save us by good works. And so Paul points out that here to make sure there's no confusion. He saved us not because of our works, but according to His own mercy, by washing and regeneration by the Spirit. He poured His Spirit out richly upon us. In other words, He didn't just give us a little bit, right? It's not a little sprinkling of the Holy Spirit. It's just a deluge, if you will, of the Holy Spirit He poured out upon us. Through Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus Christ is the one He had to go to the Father and ask the Father to send the Spirit. So it's through Jesus Christ and it's through our faith in Jesus Christ by means of that, that God then justifies us so that we can be heirs of God Himself. What salvation. What a rich passage. And if you're here this morning and you have not been born again, I urge you to repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ and Christ alone as your Savior. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. Call out to Him and ask Him to forgive you because of what Christ did for you. And God will save you. That's His promise to you. Would you do that today? Don't delay. Don't wait. Be transformed by God. So, Christians, we see in these first seven uh, verses, should be good citizens of high character. A transformed life changes how we behave ourselves in the world. We must be good and kind to all people because God was good and kind to save us when we were just like them. You need to live a transformed life because it is characteristic of salvation. God didn't save you because you were better than other people. You get that, right? I hope you understand that. God didn't look through the world and go, oh, yeah, there's David Harris. Boy, he's, he's a lot better than everybody else. No, man, I was a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What salvation. You need to live a transformed life because it is characteristic of salvation. I want you to see next in, in, chapter, in verse, chapter 3, verse 8, I want you to see that transformed life is not optional. The trustworthy saying in this passage is, uh, that Paul mentions is, is in verse 8. And it's the gospel that we just covered in verses 4 through 7. So the trustworthy saying in verse 8 is the gospel that we just covered in verses 4 through 7. And then these things refer, refer back to verses 1 through 3. Okay? So Titus 3, 8, he says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul wants Titus 
and by extension, all pastors that are entrusted with the gospel to insist upon these things in their congregations. A transformed life is not optional, but characteristic of salvation. So elders of a church or pastors of a church must insist that their church members live a transformed life. And then believers in the second part of verse eight, believers must display it by devoting themselves to good works. And then the people around us in the last part of the verse, both saved and unsaved, benefit from our transformed lives. So elders insist that their church members live transformed lives. Believers display it by being living a transformed life of good works. And then the people around us benefit from our transformed lives. You see, we have a trustworthy gospel that is to be believed and a transformed life that is to be lived by doing good works. Jesus saves you from a rebellious life of ungodliness and gives you purpose living a transformed life of good works. Look back to verses one and two. These are the things that we're to insist upon. Remind them. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Does this describe you in your workplace, young people in your school? What about in your home? What about when you're hanging out with friends? Are you shunning other people, creating a clique? What about in your social media posts? Are you kind? Or are you speaking evil of certain people? What about when you're playing sports or online games? Do these verses describe you? Because they should. They should. You need to live a transformed life because it is characteristic of salvation. Now, next, Paul gives... Titus, and by extension, elders, some things to avoid. Here we see that a transformed life avoids unbeneficial things. False teaching and fighters. False teaching and fighters. False teaching is found in chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions. That means to be engaging in rivalries and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. These unprofitable things were referring back to the false teachings that distract the church from the gospel and good works. Pastors, and by extension their congregants, are not to go looking for controversies and quarrels over false teachings. In other words, we, not, we need to not go looking for a fight. Okay? We don't have to go looking for trouble. We only need to be concerned when trouble comes looking for us. These things are unprofitable and worthless when they're compared to the trustworthy gospel and it's attending good works, which we are told at the end of verse eight are excellent and profitable. But these things are unprofitable and worthless. So this church's pastors and elders, pastors or elders, same title, same position. So this church's elders need to focus primarily on preaching the truth of God's word. 
But what about when a false teacher comes and starts attending our church? In Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, there were insubordinate, empty talkers who needed to be silenced. And so Paul told Titus to rebuke them sharply in hopes that they would become sound in the faith. But what if they don't become sound in the faith? What if they refuse to back off of their divisive position? Well, that's where Titus 3, verses 10 and 11 presents the unfavorable outcome of rebuking a false teacher. Titus 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Some people live for a fight. They love to win arguments. They insist that they are right, even when they are wrong. Winning an argument is more important than loving people. Being able to instruct others or be seen as a teacher is more important than being instructed by the truth of God's word. So this person here is claiming Christianity, but is not really a Christian. Verse 10 tells us that they are to be warned, and if they remain unrepentant, they are to be excluded from church membership. They are warped and sinful, and by their own actions, they have condemned themselves. Remember justification being declared righteous in God's courtroom? The opposite of justification is condemnation, and this false teacher, this person who is being divisive within the church, is showing that they are condemned. They are warped and sinful, and their own actions have condemned them. They have revealed that they have not really been transformed by God. You see, beloved, a transformed life is not optional, but characteristic of someone who is saved. Have you believed The trustworthy gospel. If you haven't, I urge you today, repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Come under His kingship. Let Him transform you into His likeness. But if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, if there are areas here where you're not measuring up and and you're not this good, submissive citizen, And you're not kind and gentle to everyone. And maybe you've been speaking evil of other people. I urge you to repent. Because this is not optional behavior for a Christian. It's characteristic behavior of a Christian. And so this morning, before we partake of communion, celebrating our oneness with Christ and our oneness with one another, I urge you in your seat, repent. Change your mind about your behavior and follow Christ. Ask God for forgiveness for misrepresenting His Son here on this earth. And then go forward and live these things. Today's message is a reminder that a transformed life is not optional, but characteristic of someone who has been saved. By putting off your old ways and putting on Jesus Christ. Devoting your life to good works that are done in the name of King Jesus. You need to live a transformed life because it is characteristic of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. 
thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that a transformed life is not optional. And Father, even as we come this morning, there may be some here who have forgotten and needed to be reminded about this transformed life. That they need to represent you well. And Father, I pray that you will move amongst us. That the members of Faith Baptist Church will represent your rule and your kingdom well to this world. And that we will be kind and generous to people who don't deserve it. Maybe even hateful towards us. But we are to do that, Lord, because you, when we were just like them, you showed kindness and generosity by regenerating us, justifying us, sanctifying us, and then, Lord, making us heirs to one day we will be glorified with you. Thank you, Father, for salvation. I pray that you will help us as members of Faith Baptist Church to go out and to represent you well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.